Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How how is your vacation? Very nice. I still haven't quite gotten used to the idea that it's about 50 degrees colder than it was a few days ago. (laughs) Yeah, my kids, uh, two of them are in Hawaii. I talked to them over the weekend. My son said, yeah, you know, it got down below 70 here. I had to put on a long sleeve shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Feel bad for him, don't you? Oh, yeah. It's miserable here. Morning, Jim. Good to see you. Good morning. Well, hey, I'm I'm willing to uh, go whatever direction you might want and just kind of fill in the gaps. Um, you know, I think one of the things I've noticed for me being in, an intuitive learner, when you start speaking philosophically, I'm not sure I'm always, is this, is there an official meaning of this term that I don't get? Or does it just, you know, does death dealing mean what it seems to me dealing with death? Or is there something bigger that I'm, I'm not getting? Yeah, usually what, what I'm doing is trying to illustrate through different idioms the same point and something as broad as death. There is the psychoanalytic literature on death in Freud, Zizek, Lacan. Right. I don't know if you've seen my book, but that was you know my dissertation and the book that then has been published, is dealing with the psychoanalytic realm. And so in that realm, whatever idiom I'm referring to, I'm trying to tie it back into Scripture, because I think Scripture actually gives us that it's a kind of a dual thing, that we can expand upon this, but that we can also ground ourselves. You know, what's happening in Sigmund Freud? He's dealing with patients who are coming to him in the clinic. So he's trying to figure out what's wrong with people. So I think that's important to just get the idea that he's trying to diagnose and, and you know, say, okay, what is the human problem or what, what, is the, what are these people's problems? And one of the things that he will presume is that any human neurosis that he's encountering in the clinic is in some way a shared, it has a shared etiology or genealogy, and that is that you'll just find it in people in general. And so the, the first phase of Freud, you know, the part of Freud that we all know about, everything has to do with sex. Right. How this is pictured in his understanding is that he imagines later, he's going to talk about this almost in terms of cosmic forces. To, to make a long story short, Freud is unhappy with his mono-instinctualism, that is the sex drive or arrows, er- er- because this doesn't explain the conflict that people have with themselves. And so he posits another force, the, what he will call the death drive, the death instinct, relating it to Thanatos, you know, the Greek god of death. This is kind of the middle period of Freud. You know, in a lot of psychology, Freud is just considered passe. And even more so, the second half of Freud. 
even his own immediate followers contemporary to him, including his own daughter, were not happy because there is a sense that the second half of Freud undermines the first half. Right. I'm using all of this in a illustrative way. It is illustrating something, and to the degree that it's true or not, it's still illustrating, I think, something that is true. And so Freud poses in Beyond the Pleasure Principle the idea that there's another principle other than pleasure or eros, and it is this death instinct. Simultaneous with this, you know, what is most famous about Freud is he posits three parts to human personality. So the id, you know, is just the German word for it. This it is the unconscious. It's this force. Then the superego is that part of our, you know, kind, what we would call the conscience, you know, that kind of the Jiminy Cricket character in our head. You know, let your conscience be your God. But Freud doesn't think the conscience is moral. In other words, what he's going to say, almost duplicating, I think, the Apostle Paul, he's going to say that our morality is our immorality. In other words, that voice in your head that we all think is prodding us to, you know, telling us when we're guilty, telling us when we've done wrong, his point is that's a punishing presence in, in you. And what is being punished is you. It's you punishing you. And that's the third, you know, there's the superego and then there is the ego. But what, what he's saying with superego, ego, he's just describing a split within the conscious self. As far as I know in this country, there's no major researcher or school that have bought into or promote Freud's second half. And the key thinker who has done this was Jacques Lacan. He's a wild character. You can see videos of him on uh, YouTube. But Jacques Lacan is a contemporary of, you know, the postmoderns like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, you know, kind of that shift that is going to come to be called postmodernism. It's really centered in France and among French thinkers. And I would put Jacques Lacan in among the, the these thinkers. And Lacan then is going to pick up the book of Romans and reread Romans and read the theory of the death drive and say, oh, this is just what Paul is doing. And then Slavoj Zizek has developed this and written extensively on Paul. Not just Zizek, but there's a series of thinkers, um, Giorgio Agamben, then Elaine Badu, another French thinker. As far as I know, these guys are all atheists, but they're also all studying Paul. Badu has written a commentary on Romans. Agamben has written on Romans. Lacan reads his theory into Romans 7. My conjoining, th this is not my doing. I'm just saying, oh, this is here. I've expanded upon that. Part of the idiom or the lingo that you're hearing is out of a psychoanalytic frame. But this is not foreign to what is taking place in Paul. In other words, they're all just saying, we're doing the Apostle Paul. Zizek calls himself a Pauline materialist. 
he's an atheistic. He says he's a better Christian, you know, than Milbank or others in his non-belief. His atheism is a particular kind of atheism. When he, you know, he doesn't think atheism actually solves anything. But what he is aiming at is that belief in a particular kind of God is just part and parcel of the human problem, the human sickness. Now, this should begin to resonate with us. And of course, Zizek is identifying Calvin. He gets into atonement theory, interestingly enough. This then gives us an entree into Paul that is expanding upon the deposit that we have in Paul, we're getting at a deeper insight into the human psyche through just a reading of Paul that then is applied. And this is kind of my understanding that when I say we can make progress in theology, uh, this is partly what we're doing. We can open up new avenues of understanding using, I think, the New Testament in this kind of applied sort of way. That would be one, the story of one idiomatic usage. The other would be the philosophic, and that's more complicated. You understand that philosophy in Western philosophy has never been far removed from from theology. It's never clear, in fact, that there is a clear division. You know, is Soren Kierkegaard a philosopher or a theologian? But you could almost ask the same thing about Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel is kind of the premier philosopher. The premier by, by that, I mean, he is kind of the culmination of Western philosophy. And by culmination, I mean dead end. <laughs> In other words, it ends here. Hegel? Hegel, yeah. He's, he's the summation. Uh, many people would point to Kant, and they would say, well, what Kant has done is raised all these issues or problems and not solved them what they mean by solve is rationally solve. And what Hegel is going to do is just come along and say, well, the problems of Kant, the antinomies, the antagonisms, the, the seeming failures, those are not the problem. Those are the solution. And so we're passing from a kind of rationalist understanding in Kant to what many would call a, kind, a form of irrationalism. Would it be stretching it to imagine Hegel as sort of like a threshold into uh, postmodern thought? Very much so, very much so. So uh, as far as I know, everybody that's postmodern is doing a reading of Hegel. And so Derrida, Heidegger is a key. He does at least one book on Hegel. That you almost, to be a philosopher, you're going to, you know, if, you, if that's your realm, you're going to deal with Hegel. So I, I would locate what we call postmodernism with Hegel. Some would say that's not correct because Hegel still has belief that there is a true resolution or synthesis. But the way Zizek reads Hegel is as an atheist. In other words, he thinks Hegel's an atheist. Right. And so we, out of Hegel, we have the Marxists. Marx is just reading Hegel and applying it in the area of economics. And so you have very conservative movements coming out of Hegel. You have very radical revolutionary movements coming out of Hegel. And so Zizek, you know, when he calls himself a Pauline materialist, he's also going to include his reading of Hegel as part of that. In the train of thought that we have in the West, think of the phrase, you know, Luther actually coins the phrase, God died on the cross. 
And Luther is combating the scholastics who want to divide up the person of Christ, his humanity from his deity. I actually had a professor, he, he said this, Jesus actually witnessed his own death objectively removed from the cross in his deity, and it was only his humanity. And that's specifically what Luther is attacking in his little phrase. Hegel picks up the phrase, God died on the cross, to mean something very different than Luther, that death itself is then part of who God is. And then Friedrich Nietzsche comes along and says, God is dead. There is a continuity in what they're doing. And of course, what Nietzsche means by that phrase is, Western philosophical project is dead. Uh, it's finished. And by that, all that Nietzsche, Nietzsche means by Western philosophy he includes Christianity in that. He's prophetically, and correct, uh, prophetically pointing to the emptying out of the churches, because the Western rationalistic philosophical project is a failure, which for Nietzsche is to say Christianity is a failure in the West. Now, we may not get this feeling in the United States. The United States, is, we're always way behind in fact, I, I sometimes think that right now we may be experiencing what Europe experienced, you know, a hundred years ago. That is that if you visit Europe, the churches are more or less empty, very small percentage of the population. Now that, that, that may be shifting, but here we still have a, a majority that is quickly dwindling of people that identify as Christian or are active churchgoers. In Nietzsche's pronouncement of the death of God, we may just now be getting word that, oh yeah, the Western philosophical project, which is really the Western Christian project, it's finished. It's, it's a failure. It's over. And I think we need to feel that as Christians, because for us, that's not bad news. That is good news, because that whole project I think had very little to do with New Testament Christianity. That's Janus, that's the philosophical language that I'm bringing in here. Soren Kierkegaard is important in this because he is directly engaging Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. His is a critique and, and an engagement with Hegel. So that's the philosophic, that's the psychoanalytic. In, in a sense, I think it just all converges on the same issues that are there. I think these are just the issues that are actually talked about in the New Testament that we've lost track of. I don't know if you're familiar with the term nominalism, <laughs> the essence of God, or the reality of things themselves are removed from us. That is the you know, the, the way you'll hear this, the universals are not available in, in language. So all we have is nominal names for things. Now, that in a strange way coincides again with what a Lacanian psychoanalysis is describing as what language always does. Lacan will talk about quilting points. That is that, you know, we name something and the name then, in a way, constitutes the thing. It may be bringing together disparate elements or, you know, things that really don't belong together. But in naming it, we quilt them together. In other words, Lacan is saying that language really does function in the way that the nominalists are posing 
that the universe that we're kind of condemned to just having the names and not the reality itself, that is obviously a, a lie, that's a misunderstanding, but nonetheless, it's a misunderstanding that we can take up. That is, that we can inhabit this kind of unreality. To a degree, you know, we, we all have to cross the street and look both ways. You know, there are certain realities that just impinge upon us. But there is a sense that we can live in a kind of false reality. So it's within nominalism that the Protestant Reformation unfolds. Maybe this is kind of the tragedy of, I, I'm not saying that Protestantism has to be nom, a, a nominalist understanding, but boy, that just in that has just saturated Protestant. And, and by the way, it was a Catholic, under, it was a Franciscan understanding. So it's not like the Catholics escaped it. Luther is just coming out of Catholicism. And, and so that too then feeds into, we're actually, so the theological, the philosophical, the psychoanalytic, they all fold into one another. And that's what I'm, you know, in this kind of huge project that I'm saying that New Testament Christianity addresses all of these things in a kind of simple and singular fashion, that if we can understand what's unfolded, that we really do live in you know what is called a secular age. We really are influenced by the times in which we live. And we need to be able to identify those times. We need to be able to locate ourselves and say, okay, this is what happened. You know, this happened not just outside of me. This is the, the thing that I've been raised in. And I need to be able to locate myself in this. And so we're all the heirs of these movements, whether we've heard of any of these people or know of any of these things. Nonetheless, that is the setting that has shaped our own I, everything about us, our personalities, I think individualism, our notions of the sacred and the secular, you know, just our basic understanding. So it, it's like a genealogy. If we can write it down or not, we're still part of it. To my mind, that's just partly what it means to be a Christian. I can name this thing. In other words, I can name the idols. I can point to the spirit of the age. I understand the principalities and powers. So sometimes we think of that in a kind of simplistic fashion, that we can do that without the hard work of actually attempting to, to get a grip on these things. I don't know if that's helpful, Janice, but try, I may be too ambitious <laughs> in folding all these things together. But I think the project in and of itself is quite simple. And if we can get back to the original you know, picture of what the human predicament is as it's presented in the, the New Testament. My understanding is that modernity and, and these problems are, I'm describing are not a, a time apart or not. In other words, this is the way that many people talk about the modern, as if the modern is discontinuous with the pre-modern. And my understanding is that's not true that there is a continuum, certainly we need to be able to identify the break that constitutes modern thought. You know, most people go with Rene Descartes, cogito, ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Well, wait a minute, even that little phrase, it appears in very similar form in Anselm of Canterbury and in Augustine. Can I throw a wrench in this? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I've got some questions. Have you heard of this Burning Man project? Yeah. So that comes to mind. Another thing that comes to mind are like music festivals. 
thousands in our recent memory, like thousands of people would show up for like fish books that just come on the scene and they're just all, they're just they're just like consumed so quickly. Uh, you mean Harry Potter and Yep, Harry <laughs> Potter, yeah. Burning Man, concerts. Are these unmet needs like finding connections in music and literature? Can we look across and see see a parallel process of what the New Testament is proclaiming? Can we see like a, a parallel, like there's an emptiness that's being filled or lost connection that's being connected or people trying to connect to that? You know, the term postmodern, we can be talking about a philosophical understanding, but it's also reflective of the, the cultural moment in which we're living, in which things that you're describing, mass media, you know, pop culture, that the simulacra or the appearance of things, think back to my depiction of nominalism, the appearance of things is the reality. That fashion, food, music, that these things then that we might have at one time aligned or assigned to kind of the surface level. Now the surface is the reality. And so the appearance of things and the reality of things are uh, aligned in this kind of postmodern period. So your image in the various forms of you know mass media or the projection that you have, I think these are just examples, though, of the age-old problem you know, I think it's a kind of new form and it's an aggravated form of the human condition that we've been talking about in biblical terms. Oh, pride. Well, what is that? That is an appearance. That is a projection. That is a, a facade. That is a, a kind of identity that we would clothe ourselves in. And so I think we're just in an aggravated period in which things are really, truly very thin. People's understanding as education is focused more and more on the technical, on the mechanics, on the how-to this is actually Harold Bloom at the University of Chicago yeah, years like ago. It. He wrote The Closing of the American Mind. Yeah. I don't know that I, I love Bloom's book or that it, in the end it made a lot of sense, but I think it, uh, his analysis of, of the modern situation, there was some insight there. And that is that Bloom said, you know, my cousins all have PhDs or they're medical doctors. And yet, he said, I would claim that my grandparents are better educated than any of my cousins, and my grandparents have an eighth grade education. And what he meant by that, his grandparents, he, I think, was raised Jewish, and they were very much saturated in a kind of Jewish understanding of things and interpretation of things. And then the way that he goes on to describe his cousins, you know, what you can get a PhD in computer science. Today, maybe one of the most respected professions is the medical profession or, you know, being a lawyer. But of course, all of these things that we now, we admire, they're descriptions of not any kind of philosophical, humanistic, or they're, they're descriptions of what at one time not even counted as, as a, a, a complete or full education. Bloom was a great fan of Nietzsche, by the way. Nietzsche is, you know, is just describing what have we got? We've got the reality of language. It's just an army of metaphors that's 
And so Nietzsche is kind of predicting this, that I think the modern age, the churches have emptied out, the philosophy has failed. I think we're in the midst of that failure in a more emergency kind of sense in this country. I think that gets at why these pop culture things, why people flock to the latest novels or movies or that's where their minds are. For many people, there's not a groundedness in anything beyond that appearance. Strangely, coming from Japan, pop culture just describes, you know, most people's lives, young people's lives in Japan. They're just consumed by pop culture. And the, in Japan, we call them personalities. These people just kind of exude a glory that everybody wants to bask in the glory of the film star, the music. These are kind of messianic figures for us because we've lost the real thing. We've lost the the, the reality. So that would be kind of my simple answer here. It's so obviously a, a manipulated, controlled thing. I don't think these people just arise out of thin air. I think a great deal of thought has gone into what sort of idol do we want to present? You don't become a Hollywood idol just because you're lucky, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'll just go out on a limb here. I think the church is the same thing. A church is an institution created by men. What does that have to do with the body of Christ? very little. I mean, the body of Christ has been contained within the church because we were told, this is it. This is where it's at. This is where you need to be. But as an institution and the, the idols that have been our thought leaders, I mean, they're like, they're called influencers today, right? Is this something new? Or was Satan placing the Anselms and the Calvins and the other thought leaders to feed us lies that obscured for us the truth of who he is and of what reality is supposed to be about. We just uh, put up a couple of podcasts, and my blog was on uh, David Bentley Hart's Tradition and Apocalypse. I've tended to be fairly critical of some of his ideas, but I did like his this last book, Tradition and Apocalypse. He's raising the questions that you just... Actually, this is not just a Roman Catholic, but Roman Catholic is kind of our model here. John Henry Newman, who converted from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism, he did this after writing a book on tradition. And what a Roman Catholic expects to find in the magisterium of the church is that there would be a continuity in the tradition that we can say, well, here's the church, here's the church. And of course, once you get into the details, this is just nonsense. You know, there's just periods in which Pope opposes Pope, but right. doctrine opposes doctrine. But this is not just a Roman Catholic problem. I came out of a church that's called the Restoration Movement. And so many of us, even Protestants, we think, oh, we can go back into church history and we can say, well, here was the true church. Hart's point, but actually I had, I, I'm claiming I made this point long before he did, before he wrote his book. And that is that my very understanding of the gospel is that the people who follow Christ take up the cross. And think of what that means. You know, Christ dies outside of the city. He dies outside of the powers, the principalities and powers, that he is the one that these powers would erase. I mean, that, that's what crucifixion is. It's that I want to obliterate you in the most humiliating fashion I can. 
And people who take up crosses then should find themselves in this place that is really in terms of what we're describing, cultural values, the principalities and powers, or the people who write history, and I mean written history. My point with this is that written history is carried out by the winners, by the powerful. We should not expect that the losers will in fact have any place in the record. Now, by that, I'm not saying they haven't played a role in living history. I'm just saying that in the record, in the symbolic order, in the place where these things are carried out, that the tendency will be for for the reality of Christianity to have been erased. You know, we all have examples of this, but my in-laws, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, they've both passed away now, but they were missionaries in Japan for over 50 years. And my father-in-law worked with a little group of people. It was a leper colony. Lepers in Japan are true outcasts. They were true outcasts. It's Japan is just now, the laws are changing. That Their names were literally wiped off the family register. They were pronounced dead as far as the family was concerned. Should they, and couples did get married in the leper colony and have children, their children were immediately taken away from them. These are non-persons, were non-persons as far as Japanese are concerned. It's not a surprising thing. Uh, in Japan, Christianity has a very small percentage of the population of Christian, but you know, among lepers, Actually, many of the lepers became Christians. But what kind of Christian? Well, there's no answering that question because there is no, there was no organized group. Will the leper colony in Kanoya, Kagoshima, will that ever appear in any record book? Will that ever appear, you know, in the, the church histories, the important people? It has been erased, and these people are among the erased. And I presume that that's where we're going to find the authentic story of the church, always. If we had to tell the story of Christianity in the United States, the authentic church, where would we find it? Well, our immediate tendency, I think, is to not turn to the black church. But listen to Frederick Douglass's description of the white church and of black experience. Listen to James Cone's depiction of lynching. You know, he writes the book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Can we understand the cross of Christ in the United States and not take into account the lynching of black people in the United States as part of the history of authentic Christianity? In other words, again, it's the people that have been erased, the people that would be obliterated, the people that would be forgotten. And of course, the black Christian experience, you know, it's interesting that when Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to study at Union Theological Seminary, here's this kind of elite German coming to the elite white American seminary, and he had a black friend that took him to the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said that was the only authentic Christian experience I ever had in the United States. He took back black gospel music. And of course, Bonhoeffer is experiencing in Germany the erasure of an entire people, the Jews, but those Christians who would stand with the Jews. Once again, where do we find the authentic church in Nazi Germany? 
Will it be with you know, what is literally called the German Christians, that is the state church, the church recognized by Hitler? You know, these were the people that were still getting salaries. These were the people that still had employment and had seminaries. Bonhoeffer is eventually running an underground, an illegal underground seminary. And you know the end of the story. They're going to hang him for his support. We don't know, but the plot took to kill him. So my point is that that's just the case, and we should not expect it to be otherwise. That to imagine that we can, as followers of Christ, be anything, in other words, the, our tendency, our desire, you know, I'd like to get a salary for what I do. I'd like to be recognized. Uh, I'd like to have a bit of prestige. I would like to be part of an institution that is able to give me those things. And my point, obviously, my place is kind of an anti-institutional stance, but I'm not saying that the institution by that Protestant, you know, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, we can't say that any of these systems either succeeded in obliterating the gospel, or that they were the sole purveyors of the gospel. There is a tension, and we're all involved in this tension. And so what I'm describing is not as easy. It's not so easy to, to get rid of or to shed the powers. We're all involved in the powers of capitalism in this country. I mean, once you understand the degree to which all of us are implicated just by being born (laughs) in this country. It's no easy thing to name the powers and to challenge the powers. I think that's what we're to be about. But uh, in other words, I think the Amish project is is a failed project because the powers just go with you. You just carry this kind of inclination towards gaining power and wielding power that is the human inclination. We just need to acknowledge that we live between. The kingdom of God is an unfolding reality. We can never go back and say, oh, here it is. Here is the full, authentic, here they've, yeah, they've captured it. But I'm very sympathetic with the Anabaptist perspective, but I don't quite go there. That John Howard Yoder would say about the Constantinian shift, that this was the fall of the church. In a sense, I I agree with that. But in other words, was the church obliterated by Constantine? No, I, you know, even there. Yeah, it's there. The Christians are still pursuing peace. They're still pursuing love. And there are remarkable people that are going to arise in the midst of empire. Sometimes you do, and sometimes, you know, in other words, we can't just write people off. I'm saying this to my own students, that we all need to survive in some way. We need to find fellowship where we can. But I think that all of them can hold to the institution lightly enough. This is kind of Hart's point. By the way, David Bentley Hart is Eastern Orthodox. And so I think that's kind of where we're, we may all be. I don't, I'm kind of where I am because I got ran out of a place where I could earn a living. And that's always the tendency, the gospel in its fullness, that it's the heretics who run out the Orthodox. It's not the other way around. In other words, the Orthodox don't control. They don't institutionalize. It's the heretics who create power. Yeah, they have the power, which shouldn't be a shock to us, (laughs) right? That the willingness to lord it over others, 
which is one of the things that Hart mentions. You know, you can go through the early church and just the values of the early church. He claims it was a communalism, or he equates it with communism, you know, that shared wealth. Uh, I don't know that that's true, but at least in certain instances, that was true. Certainly, there was the idea of a kind of anti-hierarchical order. You know, these phrases become so cheapened because we just hear them all the time of being a servant leader. That, that that one almost grates on me because the school I used to teach at, they, they used that phrase over and over. And of course, it meant nothing in, the, right. in, in, in their usage of it. But I think in the New Testament, it really did mean something, that we do not want to lord it over other people. We don't really want to wield power. We don't want, and what that means, we don't want to oppress people. And yet that's the way that our own self-worth and identity is often fed, is in and through controlling others. That's precisely what the early church is against, lording it over others, accumulating wealth, accumulating power. So the heart even mentions, you know, in terms of even the Eucharist, well, the early Christians wouldn't, they stood outside what would become the tradition of the Eucharist, because that itself is a product of the incrustation of institution. Excluding people. Yeah, that you exclude people. I am a little more optimistic than Hart, I think. I think that we really can resist the inclination to lord it over others. We really can resist the the powers. We really can name these, these idols. Can we extract ourselves completely from institutions? I think once two people get together, once an three institutions, if you got, in other words, immediately though, once we <clears throat> once we recognize these things and see these things, we can be on guard. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a used bookstore and I just opened it to a random page, and there's a story. There's this uh, Baptist minister stranded on an island. The ship came along and when they got to the island, there were two churches, two church buildings. They asked him, what are these buildings? He says, oh, these are two churches I built. I go to that one over there, but I would never step foot in the other one. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Yeah, you need that other one. I felt that in Calvinism, I felt I was being told, you can't question. Here's the truth. We've got the right faith. We've got the right understanding of theology, the right understanding of God. And anyone who questions us is a heretic. Yeah, we all want to, and this is kind of Hart's point and the point in our discussion, that we would all like to claim a market, that we have the market on authenticity authenticity or the fullness of the gospel. And of course, the very nature of the gospel is that it's unfolding. And the love of Christ is coming to people in ways and means that we don't know of. We can't track this thing. What we would like to do is track it you know, and commodify it and control it. I don't think it's controllable in that sense. And, and of course, by commodifying it or tracking it or capturing it, then you empower yourself. At least that's my view of what has happened in the, uh, with the institutionalized church. And by that, I'm not leaving out anybody. Clearly, we're in the Christ, a crisis with Roman Catholicism, with the sexual uh, you know, abuse of children by priests. 
But understand that Roman Catholicism, we may know of that uh, only because Roman Catholicism is very organized. They were very organized in suppressing this, but they've also been very, they now know who's who and what's what. A guy named Boz Trevigian, he's in, in Florida. He's, you know, tracked the same thing in evangelicalism. And, of course, others have claimed, well, it's the same. We also are in a sexual crisis in evangelical churches. In other words, that, that we're in this kind of crisis, institutional crisis, that it's a scandal, but not in the sense that the cross is a scandal, but in the sense, oh, no, this is a moral scandal, it is just should be obvious to everyone, that, and that is a crisis of leadership. In other words, I think we've just lost the sense. We're talking about all these abstractions in theology, but this actually has a profound impact. A culture can steal life away from us, how it can deaden us, to be able to name it. And so when I use the word pride, I think the biblical notion of pride, I think we may get the wrong images of, you know, kind of arrogance. But all I mean by that, I think all the biblical picture is that the wisdom literature, that pride comes before shame. Pride comes before a fall. That is, this thing that we've attached ourselves to is going to fall apart. And if we've invested ourselves in it, we're going to be undone. That is a depiction of shame when our world, for one reason or another, falls apart. And by the way, I'd say the same thing in our discussion about the pop culture and the glories of this thing. I I don't think we should miss that that also is nearly irresistible. I'm using the word glory here in the sense, in a kind of false sense. In other words, that people want to radiate, that there is almost just this appeal or drive that is nearly irresistible. This, by the way, is Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher. He writes a whole little book on glory. And, of course, when we're talking about glory in Christianity, we mean something quite different. But when we're talking about, you know, what is this this kind of fake glory, this false glory? Uh, Well, look at any king. You know, why is the king the king? Because the people view him as the king. I worked for a little while in a psychiatric hospital, and you know, the typical thing in a psychiatric hospital, people will come in and tell you that they're Jesus Christ. You know, if somebody comes, if somebody tells you, I'm the king, that I have this innately within me, we say, well, you're crazy. In other words, what is circulated in human glory is this admiration, and then this kind of creates a kind of almost an ontology or a gravity. But once you instill that in a person, And so what we used to do with kings and monarchs, we now do with pop culture figures. That, too, is is very compelling, and I don't think we should underestimate the sense in which that captures people. Because that is, when I say reality, I mean that hits people in a way that it's almost irresistible. And so I think that's what, when we talk about shame and pride, that's what we're tapping into. These are almost necessary things. They're not things that you can do without. You need covering. You need clothing of some kind. It's just that the way in which we would identify or clothe ourselves is going to be inadequate.
that's my point with the ego. I think we often get the, the wrong idea that Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. And of course, the word there is the word ego. He's, a, you know, in Greek, I is just ego, it's ego. Or, but I, I think we may have the, the idea, oh, that something is really done away with. And of course, the, the point is, it's not that any reality is done away with, but a false reality is done away with. That we may have an image, and image there is key, imaging, seeing, visual. That may be the sense in which we've grounded. That is, our, I think, our natural tendency is to have this kind of egoistic, or what Freud will call the bodily ego, what Paul is just calling the I. You understand that is, is an unreality, and I presume that that's what Paul means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. I presume that's tied directly to Jesus' point that he who would save his life, you know, the way we would save ourselves, the way that we would secure ourselves, the way that we would ground ourselves, Jesus says you'll lose your life that it is a loss of life to save ourselves in the way that we would. He who would lose his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. Where is life? You know, what's the source of life? Where? Well, we don't have life within ourselves. We're not innately immortal. But I think what pride and shame are, the thing they're playing with, is the notion that we can in some way generate life, that we can some way obtain reality. We can grab the stuff. That's the delusion. Can you uh, unfold your discussion about the temple cleansing death, the paradox of a sacrifice which involves death, cleansing the temple from death? Actually, the goat that is sent into the wilderness, sin and death are placed on the head of that goat and sent out into the wilderness. The temple is in some way those things are excluded or, or drawn out of the temple. And the idea of the animals is not that it's, it's, their, it's their life and their life dedicated to God is the idea in the sacrificial image that their life is given over to uh, a kind of cleansing of death. If we think of the temple as a microcosmos, which is way, the way the Jews actually thought of it, that here is the world, here is the cosmic order. And what's wrong in the cosmic order? It's polluted. And that's the imagery, you know, of the temple, that to enter into the Holy of Holies is to undo, to rid ourselves of the pollution. What is the nature of that pollution? It's not that God requires death, it's that he's cleansing the temple of death uh, and equated with sin. Now, that's a very inadequate explanation, but certainly by the time we come to Christ, I think that understanding of what the temple truly represented, I think we need to interpret and understand the Old Testament sacrifices not in terms of propitiating an angry God, you know, which is, that's the function of pagan sacrifices. But the very idea is the temple is going to be a fit habitation for God, a fit dwelling for God, in which violence and bloodshed, 
is removed from the temple. And so how is it that Christ is true temple? He defeats, you know, he is killed by violent men. His blood is shed, but he defeats that. He overcomes that. Uh, that there is life in the midst of death. There's, there is an overcoming of the wielding of death. You know, death is sort of the last, the, the worst thing that the state can do to you or the worst thing that one human can do to another. It is the ultimate power, by the way. You know, the state power, the power to declare war, this, the power of capital punishment, that is the, the literally that power is in, in, enacted in the flesh by taking life. How did the cross event actually undo the powers, or how did the cross event unravel the lie? Or the- That is the project, and your question is the question. Whether we can ever fully answer the question, I think this is the, the project that we're in the midst of, is to attempt to answer this question and not do the Calvinist trick or not do the Augustinian trick and create a kind of game in which we need this legal fiction. In other words, what I think is happening is that, there, that Christ is addressing the reality of evil. What is evil? Well, evil pertains to violence and death. What is the, you know, the pollution that is described, uh, the corruption? Well, that corruption is directly connected to death. We don't, we're not used to thinking that way because we kind of played down the role of, you know, even the notion of death as a corruption. But the reason that it's pictured as a corruption in the church is that, you know, we might think of death in a twofold sense. The way that we have it now, and I think wrongly, it's simply a punishment for sin. Well, actually, it's a, it's a containment of the problem of sin in that it is not immortalized. It is not a continuous possibility. It's a containment in that sense, but also that finitude taken as an end in and of itself. You know, this is why sin reigns in death that sin is an orientation to death. That's Paul's picture in Romans 5, you know, that Adam is at the head of a race in which death reigns. We often get this wrong, you know. Let, let me give you the phrase. The sting of blank is blank. How do you fill in the blanks? You know that somewhere in there, two sin words. And death. <laughs> death, sin and death. Death and sin. But where are they in the order? The sting of blank is blank. Which comes first and which comes second? The sting of sin is death. That's the way we would usually say it. That's not the scripture. The sting of death is sin. That's backward, but that's the way Paul says it. That's precisely backward to the way we think. Death has its limits. Death is, doesn't contain everything. It can't, it's something that can be undone and overcome. Yes, and where death is obliterated, where death is abolished, sin is undone. That's not our thinking. Our thinking is, oh, death is a result of sin. But actually, sin is an orientation to death. Ignatius is kind of on my mind. Ignatius is dealing with the Decetists, who denied that Christ actually died. They denied that he lived in a fleshly body, in a natural body. And Ignatius says to them, well, you know what? I think your belief system 
will turn out to be true, that you will be disembodied and become evil spirits. <laughs> In other words, he's insulting them. That to be disembodied is damnation. And at other places, he says, he, you, you, you are no more. You're annihilated. His point is that we are undone and saved through the death and resurrection of Christ because we're creatures. We're embodied creatures. How are you saved? When your soul goes to heaven? No, when you're raised again with Christ. It's an embodied, resurrected faith. And so once we get the sickness and once we understand that evil and violence then are this death-dealing orientation, by that I mean not just individually. Obviously, what we're describing is the nation-state. I always think the World War I monuments in which they uh, tended to write on the monuments he laid down his life for, you know, they use the scripture of the dead soldier as if the dead soldier is, is Christ, and that his fighting in a war and dying in a war was the same thing as Christ dying on the cross. In other words, it's a complete perversion of the gospel, but it's a co-opting of the gospel for the purposes of the nation state. That's what people do. There is a redemptive violence in the nation state, in the individual in try, you know, wherever you want to find it, violence is seen as a kind of a redemption. Even for persons who murder a guy that I have here, that why do they kill? He went around and interviewed people on death row. And the way they often describe this is they had a righteous anger. They had no choice. They just had to do this thing. And they almost describe it in terms of a law. Theirs is a righteous wrath in which they had no choice. That redemptive violence that is evil, that describes the human condition, is undone in Christ. Christ exposes it for what it is. That death, that evil, then is not the power that reigns. And so this is the sense that I think the orders, human orders, of morality and value tend to be, you know, what's the best thing that you can do? as an American patriot, is to lay down your life for your country. Go out and try to kill people on behalf of the nation state. But that's just true of every little tribe and group of people, that you'll lay down your life in that sense. You know, that's what Peter would have done, whacking off Malchus's ear. Right. But that's been corrupted, right? He wasn't really laying down his life. He was attempting to take another life. It was the perversion. And I think he is the betrayer in as much as Judas was the betrayer. In other words, all the apostles were infected with the problem of Judas. That's kind of the point of the foot washing. That that's the point where Jesus says, the betrayer is among you. And I don't think he meant simply it was Judas. He did mean that. But he said, I need to wash all of you because you're not wholly clean. That is, they all were infected with the sin of Judas, with the tendency of Judas. Not because they were particularly bad people, but because this is what Christ came to cleanse us of. The sin of Judas, the betrayer, the parodidomy, is undone by the didomy the Christ gives, and what Judas and Peter in their betrayal, but actually the high priest Herod, all of them hand Christ over. There's the parodidomy. They're all guilt. They just hand him over to the power. This power is pictured as the power of the state, the power of religion. 
It's just this force that we would hand people over to as if it's the controlling power. Christ's giving undoes that power. The giving of Christ undoes the giving up of the betrayer. Who is the betrayer? Well, all of the apostles, they go around and say, is it me? Am I the one? In other words, they all suspected that they were guilty or could be guilty potentially. And then when Peter, you know, insists, when Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die, Peter says, no, no, you're mistaken, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He identifies the, the satanic inclination with that death resistance that is there in all of them. But it's the human sense. We would save our lives. We would preserve our lives. I just thought of a sentence that makes no sense to me, but I'm going to toss it out anyway. Christ leverages death to reveal life as death would be like an ultimate, the ultimate force or ultimate power. Yes. I do a reading, you know, that's the reading, I think, of the trial of Jesus. What's happening in that trial? Who's really on trial? Well, I think actually the powers that be. Pilate, in one version, one manuscript, actually puts Jesus in the seat of judgment. He washes his hands. He says, I'm refusing to judge. Well, who gets judged? Christ pronounces judgment. You know, those who did the handing over. This may sound facetious, but it's like as if he would say, is that the worst you've got? Is that all you got? Yeah. You know, when we talk about the death of Christ being a necessity, I think we can misunderstand that. It's a necessity because of evil men. They kill him. But it's a necessity because what evil is is a foregone conclusion. But there is the defeat of death. You did it very nicely, Jim, in your Hebraism. The dying you shall die? Yeah, yeah. This thing intensifies. Brazier, he writes the, the, an article on where mission begins. Janice, you may be tired of the idioms. He talks about, you're going to love this one, thanatological catholicity. That is that death is the universal problem. How? Through death denial, death resistance, refusal of it. You can resist death in any number of ways. You know, the language is almost inadequate. And what Christ is doing in heading up to Jerusalem is death acceptance, embracing death and life together. In other words, that's the position that we're put in. The dying of death, the death acceptance is the embrace of eternal life. That's the description of, of baptism. That's what's happening. You know, you, you die and you're raised and you, the, the two things are necessarily embraced together. Can you cycle through that again? Death is the universal problem through death denial. Yeah. Frazier does a beautiful job with Abraham. Think, you know, chapter 12 of Genesis where Abraham is called out of Ur, comes right after the Tower of Babel. What are the Babelites doing? They would make a name for themselves. They build this big brick tower. They would storm the heavens. And implicit in this, by the way, is, of course, their language, that they're, what they're really dependent upon is a shared symbolic order that produces this big tower. And then chapter 12 of Genesis echoes what the Babylonians would do. God says, I will make your name great. I think those are the kind of the two choices. You know, what would these people do? Well, there's kind of this enduring eternal tower that reaches to the heavens. And then Abraham 
in Paul's description, is as good as dead. He's over 100 years old. Sarah's womb is as good as dead. And that's precisely, you know, God promises that he will give them offspring. And of course, the idea is that through their offspring, their name will endure. I don't think they even had a concept of life after death, but their picture or Abraham's picture was that his name would endure through his through having a child. But he's put in the position of being childless, and, and it's an impossibility that he and Sarah would have a child. And that's precisely the point. He has to accept that reality. That is the faith of Abraham. That's not a, an obstacle that's put in the way of Abraham's faith. That is Abraham's faith. To look at his situation that he's as good as dead. You know, he cannot generate life, in this case, procreate. But he trusts God. And that is, Paul says in Romans 4, resurrection faith. So Abraham's life journey is a journey of death acceptance. He leaves his home and country. How do we normally have life? Through family, through country, through those cultural Babylite associations. He's drawn out of that. And so his faith journey without home, without offspring, without anything other than the promise from God, this is a depiction of what Christian faith. He is the prototype that Paul uses for Christian faith. It's this death acceptance, this journey of death acceptance, embracing that reality and trusting in the promise of life. And, and that is called, you know, what is true Christian faith? Specifically, it's resurrection faith, life in the midst of death. Here are two lepers getting married some obscure village in Japan. Yeah. But it is a journey, right? Because, I mean, even Abraham, think about when to save his life, he had Sarah say she wasn't his wife. So, I mean, to, I, I don't condemn that. It, to me, that's an encouragement. Uh -huh. that just like me, there's a lot of this hanging on to life that we don't understand. I mean, I grew up with a father who was extremely afraid of death. I mean, that, that would just basically describe who he was. His whole life was this gripping fear of death. I thought that the, the last thing I was ever going to do was not live so that I wouldn't die because that was my, my dad's whole life. Yeah. You, you couldn't come to his house if you had a cold because he might get sick and die. So he would cut himself off from his own family, grandchildren, you know, important events of life. He cut himself off from the church, from the community. You know, no one could come into the home because they might make him sick and he might die. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that I had a pretty good understanding of not being afraid of death. And to some degree, I think I do, but I'm like Abraham. I don't realize how pervasive it is. Yeah, and you're right. You know, Abraham has Ishmael through the handmaiden. Uh, he lies on two occasions. She's not my wife. She's my sister. So Abraham is a faulty character. He's trying to help God along because his situation is impossible. But so is all of our situations. In other words, that's precisely where faith kicks in. It is this apocalyptic kind of belief. And sometimes we were there, but, but you're right. Then the, the cost, the price of doing it otherwise is kind of the Babylonite false religion that you can imagine you can storm the heavens. Kind of a trend among the super rich. 
These people have all of this money, and what are they doing with it? They're preparing for the apocalypse. They're setting up little islands, little you know, bomb shelters. Some of them literally have helicopters gassed up, ready to, to take off. They have all of this wealth and seeming grounds for security. And what it gives rise to is the pervasive fear. fear. Yeah, pure fear. And Bill Gates' seed bank, right? He's ready for the end of the world and where nothing lives anymore. So he's got the seed bank so that he can start over again. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> no, he has, he has a seed bank that basically has every seed of every living herb on earth that's yeah. stored in a, you know, what only a really extremely wealthy vault could create so that it will survive any apocalypse. Yeah. It may be functioning consciously. It may be functioning unconsciously. Freud says that in the unconscious there is no mortality. In other words, what Freud describes in encountering what is really driving us, it is this presumption of innate immortality, or at least the drive. But you understand that is the death drive. That's the genius here. The thing that kills you, it is a pure deception in which you would imagine you, you have life. Freud is just describing what I think Paul is describing. And that's why these guys have linked us up with, with Romans 7. And by the way, it's, I, it's always very telling to me who reads Romans 7, 7 and following as either a Christian or non-Christian condition. Calvin, of course, reads that as the typical Christian. Arminius comes along and says, no, that's not the Christian. That's, that's the non-Christian. But I think that's a description of the psychology that's involved in a form of belief that is actually death dealing. But there is an innate realization that we're immortal that's that's a healthy one, right? That we're made for immortality. Right. But we do not have innate immortality. We do not have life within ourselves. Paul says this point blank to Timothy, God alone is immortal. So we have life not in ourselves, but outside of ourselves in Christ. And what that means, uh, what constitutes us as human beings does not lie within us, right. but we are constituted as human beings in the body of Christ. So yeah, I think we're made for immortality, but we do not have that innately. I think that you can go too far, a one step up to not even need to believe that God is offering us eternal life. You just you just lay down your life for others because that's the right thing to do. A foreshortened picture. I think creation is for eternal purposes. This is a very Eastern view, by the way, of creation. That creation is continuing to unfold in the person and work of Christ. That creation and recreation are, are on a continuum. That I think creation is for eternal purposes. N.T. Wright gets this, but, but the idea is that we often picture leaving the world and going to heaven. But what that misses is this sense in which, oh, this God always made us to be his friends. The temple of the world is a fit dwelling place for God for eternity. And it's only there that the true beauty, I think, the true goodness of God and of creation is going to shine forth. Otherwise, Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we are among all men to be pitied. 
because that's the hope that is the Christian hope. I've kind of encountered I've encountered both things of extreme fundamentalism and simultaneously in, in my life these things hit me. Uh, I was on a board of a campus ministry up here at a uh, institution, and the campus minister said something like, "Well, if they find the body of Jesus, it wouldn't bother me." And I just said in the board meeting, "He de- he can't be he can't deny the resurrection and and be a Christian." Nobody agreed with me. This was a board made up of local ministers. And there are they liberal? Well, I don't know what they are. In other words, they're just flaky. They're, they're people who do not have the sensibility that the resurrection is, that is the core teaching of Christianity. You deny the resurrection, well, do something else. Don't call it Christianity, you know. Join the moose or the elks or, <laughs> yeah. you know. Wherever there's people. I always thought about this campus ministry up here. In no way was it anything personal against him. He had just, he had never had any kind of education. Of, of, and so he, he had been completely influenced by a, actually a Disciples of Christ. It was a professor just doing the typical thing in a, a classical liberalism in which you take apart the historicity of the Bible. And, you know, and you're, you're really left with nothing. And that was the only education he had. But at the same time, he had become a Christian through the influence of a man who had come from this little school who was just as flaky and just, in other words, I think that extreme fundamentalism and what we call liberalism are really just part of Two sides of of the same coin, right? Two sides of the same coin. It's all the same, you know, same thing. You're just. I do too. Yeah. And an authentic. Christianity, it is not the fundamentalist liberal controversy that we should be concerned about. That that whole controversy is just a misdirected. Right, it's a distraction. It's a distraction. Yeah. Same thing. You know, this was actually Ray asked me about this. You know, often we think that the answer to Calvinism is Arminianism. No. Wait a minute. Arminianism is just they shared all of the same problems. Right. It's just one step away. And he didn't understand. He had never heard that. And of course, what you do, you just show, well, Arminianism, individual predestination, you know, secret election of God, original sin, you know, the uh, total depravity, a total depravity. Uh, All are there in Arminianism. He just, Arminius just proposes prevenient grace. What an innovation. Nothing to do with it. Yeah, where do you pull that out of the Bible, right? So you just don't need to go there. You just don't need to play that game. But I'm afraid, and this is kind of my point with Ignatius, this picture of the gospel is so simple. And yet I think the clutter of theology has just obscured what is the simple gospel. Because what we want to talk about is sovereignty, will, determinism, or free will. None of that is there, you know, in somebody like Ignatius. It's so simple that we almost can't understand it. Almost like a sundial, you know, you just have this thing making a shadow, mark time, you know, and we love our Swiss watches and atomic clocks and satellites. Satellites. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you got to know how to read a sundial. So that this profound, simple insight is the one that I see this class building upon. 
In other words, once we get this straight, and this is this would be my point with tradition or with the fullness of the gospel. You can tell when you've hit upon a truth or something that is not the truth, this is just heart here, that what we have in, I think, in a, an orthodoxy, a true orthodoxy, is fruitfulness. It's open-ended. The, the conversation flows out of that orthodoxy. Whereas heterodoxy, that's the end. It, it abruptly stops. Think of Calvinism. I think you can just stop thinking. Here's the formula, you know. Right. But I think that's characteristic of all heterodoxy or all faults. It's just not fruitful. But I think this simple biblical truth is it can be highly fruitful. And that's where we begin. You know, that's the psychoanalytic application, the philosophical application. It just goes every direction once you see it. That's where I started as a naive young child, but hadn't heard of such things as propitiation and penal substitution and that God wanted to destroy me. He was so angry with me. I saw him, (laughs) you know, I saw Jesus being the, the love that wanted to show me the right way and to bring me to him. I just, my whole interaction with Calvinism and, and everything was just eye-opening. And for me, the long story, but the day when I just really realized that it was heterodoxy, that I just, I couldn't tolerate it and, and say, oh, maybe maybe it's compatibilist, maybe it's kind of true and kind of not, was the day I felt like I had God back, yeah. the, the God of the Bible, who was love. And of course, what you just described, Janice, the love of God literally is displaced. You know, that focus is displaced by focus on freedom, will, sovereignty. The conversation has shifted up. Right. Hey, I'm glad we could do this. I hope we've addressed some of the issues. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.